you give me a moment. There, just get that a little higher up. Um, so we're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians. And uh, we're looking at what it means to be the family of faith. And I think we, we've had had opportunities to see that in action this morning already, and we will have opportunities to see that continuing a little bit later on. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. We'll read that in just a few minutes, but if you want to uh, get a finger in that passage already, that's perfectly fine. So interesting thing about me, we try to, try to tell people a little bit about ourselves in the, in the process of being up here. Uh, I've always kind of liked old cars in my blood, I guess. Uh, My grandfather taught auto mechanics for many years at what is now Sask Polytech, uh, Saskatchewan Institute of Applied Science and Technology before that. He always calls it STI, or he did when he was still alive, Saskatchewan Technical Institute. After he retired from there, he had quite a run as an author of automotive textbooks, so I kind of come by it honestly. Now, everybody that's into old cars kind of has a a thing, right? Some people are into the newer uh, foreign import cars with huge spoilers and stuff like that. Some people are really into the muscle cars of the late 60s and early 70s, you know, Mustangs and Firebirds and Chargers. Myself, I go more for the mid-century stuff, uh, you know, 40s. 40s and 50s cars in particular. They just have, have so much chrome and so much style. You know, my dream car is a 54 Buick Skylark, but unless I step up to televangelist pay, I doubt I'm going to be buying one, <laughs> so fear not. Um, so I just admire other people's nice cars. And last April, Dashell and I went to the Majestic's car show in Regina, and it was kind of a fun outing, especially if you dress up for the occasion and you become a bit of a celebrity in the process and you get afforded special privileges uh, from the car owners. At a show like that, there are lots of different kinds of cars. Um, and I hear I'm thinking primarily of the, of the old ones. There are, there are family heritage cars. These are the ones that have been, uh, they've been passed down from one generation to the next, right? They, they've, been, they've had some work done on them, but a lot of the times you get, well, that was, that was granddad's car, and son inherited it, and now grandson has inherited it, and, and you know, maybe the engine has been pulled, maybe it's been redone, maybe it's had a paint job, maybe the upholstery's been, been refurbished, but a lot of the people that have these kind of cars, they, they delight in keeping them stock, Right? Just, just like they were when they rolled off the assembly line. Um, and that, that's, that's one type of car that you see at those sorts of things. Maybe they, they display them right with, with the pictures. Right, Here's granddad when he bought the car in 1952. Or here's grandma and grandpa on their wedding day. That kind of thing. Uh, but then there's other cars. There's project cars. And there was one I remember in particular. Now I don't have a picture of it. Uh, it was a 1941 Pontiac. The owner had some, some photos of the restoration project displayed. It was a real process. The first photo of the car, it wasn't even really a car. That, that's, of course, not it there. I, I didn't get a really good picture of this car. But the photos were really interesting. The first photo, it, it was hard to see that it was even a car. It was this rusted-out hulk sitting in the weeds. It had no wheels, and the windows were smashed out. And there, it was the sort of thing that most collectors wouldn't, wouldn't even consider for a parts car. It was in such bad-looking shape. 
But then there's the pictures of, of the restoration process. Somebody decided to make something out of that car. And essentially, they must have rebuilt it from scratch, basically, because so much work needed to be done on it. But when they were done, it was nice. Like, really, really nice. Like, they, they, you know, they'd done all the, they chopped this and chopped that, and, and uh, it had all the chrome redone. It had a, the engine was all chrome with a big old supercharger sitting on the top there, and it had, like, wheels about about yay big on there. It was, it was a work of art. Like, it wasn't just restored to, to factory condition. It was restored into something that was incredible and amazing. All custom, everything. Whoever did that, they made a work of art. Now, keep these two different types of car restoration projects in mind as we begin to turn to more spiritual things. If you'd like to stand with us, Stand together, and we'll read our our sermon passage for today. Ephesians 2, 1-10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Let me have a seat. I think the Apostle Paul must have, must have been a very unique individual. He's in some ways very eloquent, although some scholars do argue that some of his most poetic and beautiful passages may have actually been uh, kind of cribbed from from hymns and early confessions of the Christian faith. But in other ways, the Apostle Paul, he could just be incredibly blunt. And we get that today. First, the blunt part. As one commentator put it, it is by no means smooth and elegant, but Paul's style overall is rugged and powerful, not elegant. To blaze a trail through Gentile pretension and pride called for a bulldozer, not an ornamental hoe. He just opens up the section with the words, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There's no, hey guys, um... I know this may be not politically correct or culturally sensitive. I know maybe you don't want to hear this, but I think you kind of need to. He just says, apart from life in Christ, you're dead in trespasses and sins. Full stop. Now, this doesn't exactly sell in our culture, does it? Our culture loves to believe that if people just had the right opportunities and the right education and and all of these kind of things and freedom to express ourselves that we'd create some kind of utopia in the John Lennon imagine kind of a sense. The puzzling thing to me is that people actually can believe this sort of nonsense. All right, how can we believe, 
Have we looked at the last century? Two world wars, Hitler, Stalin, Mao. Like, bad things happened and continue to happen. We continue to just find ways that we can kill more and more human beings all the time. Now we have a nuclear arsenal. Still, we have a nuclear arsenal that could destroy all life on Earth. And we've been scaling that back for some decades. These aren't exactly comfortable things to think about. We'd prefer to think that we're basically good. But Paul is pretty clear at this point. Apart from Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Not we're a bit off track. Not we're lacking in some areas. Not we're not living up to our potential. Dead. Remember last week when we talked about the whole system of everything being like that runaway freight train just headed for sin and death and destruction? Well, in Paul's mind, it's like that train... The locomotive leading the train has already crashed and the rest of the cars are just piling up in a massive wreck behind it. It's a curious kind of dead, though, that Paul talks about here because we were dead, but we were also walking around. Now, I'm not really into the whole, the whole zombie apocalypse thing. That's a little dark for me. But here's the thing. What Paul is describing is pretty dark Two, it's kind of like a zombie apocalypse in its own right. Dead people walking around, animated by this sinister power, carrying out their basic animal impulses without any hope of finding some sort of a cure. It's kind of the stuff of nightmares, except unlike zombie apocalypse shows and films, this is true. Take a look at how Paul describes the situation. You walked... He says, according to the course of this world, or perhaps this age, and according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, the ESV has following these things, and other translations have, as I said, according to. Those are adequate translations, but it's probably not a stretch to make them even stronger than just according to, or even following. Something like under the control of, or in bondage to, could be appropriate here. Here's the thing, and it's one of the great ironies of human existence at a moral or theological level. We think we're free when we're living for today and living for ourselves. This has been our culture since at least the 1960s, and really for a long time before that, if you study philosophy much. You know what I'm saying, right? Reject established systems of authority because those are oppressive, and instead, construct truth and reality for yourself and just do whatever except it doesn't work. That's what Paul is saying here. You think you're free, but you're really enslaved. In fact, when you think you're most free, you're probably most enslaved. You think you're a rugged individual, but really you're just following the course of this world and the culture. You think your culture is gradually working its way up toward enlightenment? No. Actually, if we had eyes to see it, it's under control of the evil one. In Paul's first century context, the air was frequently seen as the abode of certain types of evil spirits. It makes a certain amount of sense, right? Spirits being incorporeal, invisible, and being that the words in Greek and Hebrew for spirits means wind. makes sense that that would be seen as the place where evil spirits might, uh, might kind of float around out there. It's interesting that in some places, Paul kind of downplays this sort of thing as perhaps superstition. But here, he does no such thing. He's basically saying, yep, there's messed up stuff out there. 
that you can't see, that you don't have the foggiest clue about, but you might be in bondage to it nevertheless. Dark and kind of creepy stuff going on. And I don't think we can just dismiss this in our own day, in our own cultures, all that. That's just primitive superstition. At least not all of it. And I do sometimes wonder whether the fact that so much of our media is transmitted through the air might bear some consideration in this regard. Now, that's just speculation. And I certainly don't think it's helpful when people go around looking for evil spirits and demons under every rock and behind every tree and everywhere you turn. And while bondage to evil spirits is real and is powerful, Paul is always quick to remind believers in Christ that he is more powerful and is above them all. But let's be clear, without Christ, both individuals and culture is going nowhere good. Without Christ, it doesn't matter how free you think you are. You are in bondage. Without Christ, living a life enslaved to your passions and lusts will wreck you in the end. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Or at least it doesn't have to be. In verse 4, we have one of the greatest phrases in the New Testament. Two words. But God. You were dead in your sins and unable to do anything to get yourself out of that situation. You were dead. You were just living to satisfy lustful and wicked desires. You thought you were free, but you were really enslaved. But God, what did he do? We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Paul's kind of dangling that out like the carrot on the, end of the, on the end of the string and the stick. He wants to tell us why God did what he did. Two things, because he was rich in mercy and because he loved us with a great love. You know what, friends? We say we believe this. And I think we truly do believe it. But let's not pretend that this is the way we naturally and instinctively think, even as Christians. God didn't intervene because of our heritage, our ethnic or religious or any other kind of heritage. And for Paul, this meant that he could not depend on his Jewish heritage and the practices that went with it as automatically putting him in God's good graces. God didn't intervene because of our good works. Remember where Paul started. Without Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins, carried along on that runaway train of sin and death, and unable to live a life that pleased God. This is really hard for our self-esteem-obsessed culture. But God didn't intervene because he saw something great in us, or saw that we were worthy, or had an unnoticed core of deep-down goodness hidden in there somewhere. He didn't even do it, and this is going to sound like heresy in our culture, because he saw our potential. God did it because he was rich in mercy and because he loved us with a great love. Yes, yes, well said, mumble, mumble. Thank you, Pastor. We like the idea, yes, we agree, but it's not a comfortable idea in a lot of ways. Some level, I think we would prefer it if we could say that, yes, God did choose us for for something. There must be some reason, something in us that he would choose us for, some quality that merited, because we could understand that. We could make sense of that. But God loving us just because he loved us? That is really hard for us to wrap our minds around. But what if, what if the point isn't 
to wrap our minds around it? What if the goal isn't to understand it? What if the goal is just to rejoice in it and accept it? Finally, we get to Paul's main point. We were dead, but God made us alive. This is big. This is is a total transformation. This is a 180-degree course change. Too often we think of salvation as something we add to our lives, right? You accept Jesus into your life, we say. It's like we imagine ourselves going along, mostly okay, kind of hitting a solid, you know, solid B minus there most of the time, but not getting straight A's. So if we add Jesus, then our life, morally speaking, will, will make the grade. But we're doing mostly okay, just a bit deficient, right? We have a God-shaped hole there somewhere that needs filling, a little sickness of soul that needed some medicine. Paul says, no, without Christ, you're not sick, you're dead. End of story. Right? We're not like granddad's old car that just needed, ah, it'd be nice if it had a fresh coat of paint. Ah, the upholstery's a little cracked there. Maybe we should take it in and have that, have that redone. No, we were like that wreck just left to sit and rust out in the weeds, just disintegrating and hardly anything left of it and not worth bothering about. We needed a full-blown restoration, not just a little tinkering here and there. We needed not just to be fixed up a bit, but to be remade. Right, as Paul says in another place, if anyone is in Christ, he's not just fixed up a bit, he's a new creation. It doesn't get much bigger than this. We were dead, but God made us alive in Christ. Let's not miss the magnitude of this. He made us alive in Christ. That is, the life we have is actually Christ's life. Because as we read in our early passage, We've been united with him. I think we have a video here. Can we roll that? Automation's world headquarters. Research has been proceeding to develop a line of automation products that establishes new standards for quality, technological leadership, and operating excellence. With customer success as our primary focus, work has been proceeding on the crudely conceived idea of an instrument that would not only provide inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal gram meters. Such an instrument comprised of Dodge gears and bearings, Reliance electric motors, Allen Bradley controls, and all monitored by Rockwell Software is... Rockwell Automation's retroencabulator. Now, basically, the only new principle involved is that instead of power being generated by the relative motion of conductors and fluxes, it's produced by the modial interaction of magnetoreluctance and capacitive directance. The original machine had a base plate of prefamulated amulite surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing in such a way that the two spurving bearings were in a direct line with a panometric fan. The lineup consisted simply of six hydrocoptic marzal vanes, so fitted to the ambifacient lunar wane shaft that side fumbling was effectively prevented. The main winding was of the normal lotus o deltoid type placed in panendermic semi-boloid slots of the stator. Every seventh conductor being connected by a non-reversible tremie pipe to the differential girdle spring on the up end of the gram meters. Moreover, whenever fluorescent score motion is required, It may also be employed in conjunction with a drawn reciprocation dingle arm to reduce sinusoidal depleneration. 
The retroencabulator has now reached a high level of development, and it's being successfully used in the operation of Milford Trunnions. It's available soon wherever Rockwell Automation products are sold. So maybe you've seen that video. Of course, it's just one big joke, right? None of that actually means anything. Uh, it's just an old engineering joke. But we can all think of situations where the jargon just went right over our heads, where certain buzzwords and catchphrases, even if they actually meant something at some time, just became so overused that they were more or less meaningless. It can happen with, with tech terms, leadership, or business lingo, and sadly, it can happen even with theological truth. Right? Is a phrase like, with Christ or in Christ, is it in, in the same kind of danger? Is, is it just in danger of becoming empty church speak, like the kind of thing that guy was saying? We just say all these words, but they're not actually connected with anything that's real in our lives? Well, it can be if we're not careful. Let's be careful that when we use phrases like, in Christ, or walking with Jesus, or my journey of faith, we actually mean something. Because, friends, the realities behind these types of words and phrases are just simply staggering. At least they ought to be. When we talk about what it means to be in Christ, it should blow our minds, not something that we casually just toss around because it's words to say, right? Words that have no more meaning than a reciprocating dingle arm. There's powerful truth there. Grace, God's grace, that's another one of those terms. We throw it around, we sing about it, but do we cherish it the way Paul does here? Has it so taken root in our souls that it just comes, it just comes bubbling out? Right? He can't even finish a sentence. He's like, guys, guys, by grace you have been saved. He interrupts himself. He just, it keeps coming out multiple times, even in this short passage. You've been saved by grace, guys. It, it's all a gift, you did nothing to deserve it. You did nothing to earn it. You just have to accept it by faith. And we sit there and go, yeah, that's right. This should blow our minds. This was just as shocking for Paul's audience, and it's still the shocking thing now. It's not that Paul's culture, Jewish or even Roman, didn't believe in grace. It's not that they were just this strictly kind of works righteousness system where you just tallied up merits with God somehow, like on a scale. People believed in grace, I think, but at the very deepest level, everybody seemed to think, or most people did anyhow, that there, there must be something that could explain why God should choose to show favor and grace. There must be something about his chosen people or his chosen individuals that answered this question of, of why God would show grace and show favor. But Paul says, no, it's, it's completely incongruous. It's completely inscrutable. God did it because he did it. And yet, it's not exactly unconditional either. It's not the result of works. But it is for works. Good works do not produce or procure the grace of God. But the grace of God does produce good works. We aren't saved by good works. But we aren't saved apart from them either. This isn't exactly easy to break down into nice, neat little categories, but, you know, nothing worthwhile is. That's the thing about the scriptures. The scriptures make bold claims, and it makes them in a way that requires us to actually think about this and actually wrestle with it in applying it 
in our lives. So Paul says on the one hand, it is absolutely not by good works that you're saved. You contribute nothing. But on the other, he says, the reason you were created in Christ Jesus was to do good works. He actually prepared those in advance for you to do. Friends, we need both. Without the truth that we were created for good works, we can become lazy and complacent and just assume that I grew up in a Christian home or, you know, I I went to a Christian high school or I prayed the prayer once upon a time when I was at camp back in junior high. I'll be with Jesus forever. I'm good to go. But without the truth that we are totally saved by grace, we can become neurotic and obsessive and either despair over our sins or become legalistic about our success. We need to remember both of these truths. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. But we are saved for works that God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. You see the contrast, right? Apart from Christ, dead in sins and walking in them, but with Christ, walking in the good works that he's prepared for us. I'd like to leave us with two things as we close. First, as this series is specifically looking at what Ephesians tells us about being the family of faith, let's remember that we are made alive What does it say? Together with Christ. All of us are united with Christ. Gloriously, that means that each one of us is cleansed from our specific sins and the bondage to them and united with Christ. That means that each one of us is raised to new life as we hear and respond to God's call to rise from spiritual deadness. But it also means that we are then raised together to be God's people in this world. If each of us are united with Christ, it means we are also united with one another. Let's remember that. We need one another. As you may have heard uh, heard me say in our church fair video, right? Babies, kids, teens, young adults, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, and even weird uncles in the faith. We need all of each other. It can be a bit of a popular straw man to assert that the Bible is part and parcel of a primitive and superstitious culture that believed far differently about truth and morals than we do. Not so. Paul's culture, particularly in a city like Ephesus, was, uh, was pluralistic and permissive, just like ours is. Let's remember that as well, that the claims that Paul is making here sounded just as crazy in his own time as they do today. And to live out something that sounds crazy to our culture means we need one another. We need to draw together. We need to support and encourage one another as we walk this walk with Jesus. Because he made very explicit and exclusive kinds of statements. It basically comes down to this. You have two options. Option one. You are dead in sin, and therefore dead to God. Or option two, you are dead not in sin, but dead to sin, and therefore alive in Christ. Perhaps you find yourself in in option one, or at least you're not sure. Pray, and I exhort you to find clarity on that. Sort out what it means to accept the new life that Christ offers you if that's you 
if you know that that's the case of your soul. Or, or if you're just in a place where you're saying to yourself, I, I don't really know. I'm not sure. Get some clarity on that. Talk to someone about that. Perhaps you don't find yourself in option one. Perhaps you do find yourself in option two. You're, you're saying, yes, I know I've accepted Christ. I've, I've been washed clean. I've had some kind of an experience of surrendering my life to him. But you still find yourself tempted by sin or plagued with doubts. Maybe you have some sin you need to, to confess. Maybe you have some issues that you need to get straightened out. Do that. But don't lose sight of God's grace in Christ in the process. Take a look of honesty at those sins. But take two or three looks of worship at Jesus. He's given you life. He's made you new. He's united you to himself. And whether you feel that or not, that's what he says about you. The question is not whether you can do anything to make that more or less real. The question is just whether you can walk in greater obedience to that truth that's already true about you. So let's take some time to pray as we think about these, these truths and these realities. And may they be more than just a whole lot of babble. May these words actually mean something. And uh, following that, we'll, we'll spend some time in worship, we'll spend some time in thanksgiving, and uh, we'll spend some time together as family as well. Will you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Thank you for the truth that you have made us alive, though we were dead in trespasses and sins. Thank you that you have raised us up, that you have united us with Christ, that that new life is not something we could ever ever come up with ourselves, but it's the life of Christ poured into us. We scarcely know how to say these things in a way that, that uh, does them justice. Lord, we, we confess that sometimes we say these words that we read in Scripture, um, but we, 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 we don't really know we don't have the foggiest clue of the depths of the riches of, of what we're saying. We're like the guy in that video uh, talking about words that don't even seem to mean a whole lot to us. Pray, Lord, that when we, we come to passages like this and we hear about your grace to us, when we hear about being united with Christ, when we hear about being one in Christ, when we hear about being raised to new life, when we hear about faith and being prepared for good works, that we would recognize that we are, we are touching holy, sacred things, things that are beyond us, and yet things that by your grace you have made real for us. We don't understand all of these things, Lord. Your word is deep. But may we hear your call to remember your grace that offers us freely what we could not earn or achieve for ourselves. And may we hear your call to live and walk in the good works that you have prepared 
in advance for us to do. May we do so more faithfully, more fruitfully, as we continue to seek you in all that we do, even today and even this week. We pray that this would be increasingly real in our lives and in our lives together as a church. May we walk more faithfully in the truth of who we are and who you've made us. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now we've heard about it on a number of occasions, but I would like to invite Mark Duncan, our church board chair up, uh, to make a very important